Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Curse of Loneliness and the Hope of Kindness by Roger Bretherton. Loneliness kills. I've known that for a while. It dawned on me when, as an undergraduate, I first read the anthropological studies of the so-called voodoo death curse, an admittedly politically incorrect name for a horrifying phenomenon that has haunted me ever since. The studies reported in the early 20th century attempted to account for the highly effective way in which shaman in tribal cultures were able to pronounce death on aberrant members of their community. Often, within days of coming under the curse, the hexed individual was dead. It looked like magic. Psychologists studying anxiety became interested in this phenomenon as an illustration of the connection between social stress and physical health. On closer examination, they noted that those on the receiving end of a death curse not only came under the opprobrium of a powerful spiritual authority, but were consequently entirely isolated from the community that gave them their identity. The moment the curse was decreed, they became a non-person. They ceased to exist in the eyes of the collective. They became a ghoul, a wraith, an abomination to their people. They experienced a social exclusion so absolute and catastrophic that the stress of it killed them. Physical death swiftly followed social death. But the death curse is not confined to Stone Age tribes and agrarian collectives. It is a ubiquitous artefact of human social life. In subtly disguised form, it continues to stalk the industrialised societies of the West. We see it in any social situation that terminally frustrates our hardwired biological need to belong. When we are cast out of employment through redundancy, retirement or sickness. When a social faux pas leaves us persona non grata. When our social media presence is more of a toenail than a footprint. When we fall foul of the charismatic leader of a workplace, a neighbourhood, a family, a church. We may for a moment shiver in the chill breeze of the death curse. We wonder briefly if the silence and the cold shoulders will kill us. We don't often think about the all-too-evident connection between belonging, stress and health. But we should, because social connectedness is the primary way we as a species have made it thus far. Most of us are familiar with the physiological responses to acute stress. There are only a few of them. It's like multiple choice tests. Take your pick. A, fight. B, flight. C, freeze. D, faint. Or E, some bespoke combo of all of the above. We probably also have some recognition that those of us living in information economies tend to spend too much time in these stressed states of mind. They are designed for short-term threats like predators, not long-term projects on serial deadlines. The cortisol coursing through our veins, designed to deliver us from danger, now stops us sleeping at night, 
and lurks behind all the major killers of our culture, cancer, heart disease and depression. But before we get all that stressed out running and punching and standing still like startled rabbits, there is a more common everyday way that human beings deal with stress. Our primary way of navigating a challenging and threatening world is our equally hardwired ability to reach out to others, the social engagement system. This tend and befriend response is present in many species, but it reaches a particular level of genius in ours. Our capacity to form groups that can coordinate action through a sense of unified purpose is what allowed our ancestors to take down woolly mammoths and survive ice ages. Our principal strength comes not from our ability to make fists, but to join hands. No wonder then, given our history as an eminently social species, that loneliness, the perceived shortfall between desired and actual social contact, is experienced as a menace to our survival. It once was and still is. To fall out of connection with others is an existential threat. Clinical research has been reporting for decades that social support, or rather the lack of it, predicts and maintains pretty much every form of psychological distress we can bring to mind. In a small-scale way, I repeat that finding with my own students every year. We annually distribute a 19-item wellbeing survey to several hundred university students. Most of it asks about the good stuff, happiness, quality of relationships, sense of purpose, and so on. But one question asks them to rate simply on a 1 to 10 scale how lonely they are. Every time we run it on campus, this single lonely question predicts levels of depression, anxiety and stress better than any other demographic. So it's good that loneliness is back in the news. Only last month, the US Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, issued a report on the devastating health impact of loneliness. It affects a large proportion of the population. He cites 50% in the US, but UK estimates tend to be more conservative. It is apparently as damaging to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and twice as risky as downing six alcoholic drinks a day. Public health officials are partial to measuring mortality in fags and booze, but Vivek Murthy did something very unlike a public health official. He spoke about his own loneliness, how his very success in office had severed ties with friends and family, leaving him isolated, lonely, and having to learn to reconnect. He proposes six pillars for addressing the societal scourge of loneliness – but as yet no government funding has been allocated to the initiative. When the experts are asked what we can do about loneliness, they tend to advocate a multi-level approach. As individuals, we should get out. If we are lonely, there are things we can do about it. Volunteering, exercise, singing, therapy, reconnecting with old friends. Counterintuitively, we are more likely to benefit from activities in which we give something, in which we care or contribute. It is when we give to others that we know we are known, we matter. 
As groups, we should look out. Not everybody is able to overcome the barriers to social contact. Some people, through physical or mental disability, need others to look out for them. I witnessed a heartwarming example of this recently. There is a notorious character who lives locally. He dresses in black, has wild hair, walks with a limp and speaks in grunts. He's harmless, but he scares children. I don't know what trauma or substance reduced him to this state, but he staggers past us twice on the way to his allotment. A few weeks ago, thieves broke into his shed and stole all his gardening tools. He was pitifully distressed. But within hours, the entire neighbourhood had mobilised through social media and equipped him with every trowel, fork and hoe that could be spared. I can't help feeling that there is something in us as people that wants to act kindly like this. And cultivating this instinct gives me hope that we as a society can beat back the spectre of loneliness. Which leads us to the third level of action. We need to sort out the dehumanising trends of our culture that inevitably generate and enable the pandemic of loneliness. As Mother Teresa famously observed, loneliness is the price we pay for wealth in the West. It is our true poverty. There may be something inspiring about the ruggedly individualistic, materialistically motivated, hyper-competitive ideal of success that presides over our culture. But the studies of psychological well-being unanimously conclude that every one of those motivating values leads to misery distrust and isolation. Loneliness, it seems, may not be just a bug in our software. It may be encoded in our cultural firmware, part of its operating system. Perhaps that is why most government-led attempts to alleviate the problem, in the UK and US at least, smack of tokenism. As the old organisational mantra goes, our social system is perfectly designed to bring about the outcomes it produces. So, what do we need? Nothing much. Just a completely transformed society. Only there was one of those knocking around somewhere. Local Heroes' 40-Year-Old Lesson About Relationships by Yaroslav Walker This year marks four decades since the release of Bill Forsyth's masterpiece and it is a real joy to have the excuse to revisit it. Local Hero is a glorious warm mug of tea of a film. Charming, gentle, sweet, gorgeous and funny in the kindest and most uplifting way. What's more, its theme and message are as pertinent as they were 40 years ago. More so, actually. Local Hero follows Peter Regis Mack, a faux Scotsman who is displaced from his busy life as an oil executive in Houston to the small highland village of Furness. There, he is expected to oversee the sale of the village and beach so it can be developed into an oil refinery. The eccentric and astronomy-obsessed owner of the oil company, Felix Happer, played by Burt Lancaster, 
thinks that Mac is just the right man for the job on account of his name sounding Scottish. Upon arriving in Scotland, Mac meets Danny Olston, Peter Capaldi, who will be his assistant from the Scottish branch of the company, and the two set off on the journey to Furness, meeting Jenny Seagrove's love interest and an ultimately unfortunate rabbit. When in Furness, Mac must contend with Dennis Lawson's hotelier, barman, accountant, Gordon Urquhart, an affable but shrewd negotiator who is determined to get as much money as possible for the people of Furness. During his stay, Mac is baffled, bemused and slowly bewitched by the colourful locals from Urquhart's wife Stella to Soviet fisherman Victor to shabby beachcomber Ben. I dare not say much more about the plot, so as not to rob you, dear potential viewer, of the delightful experience of allowing Forsyth's perfect writing and delicate directing envelop you and clam you, take you by the hand and lead you through the story with grace and wit. The performances are lovely. Mark Knopfler's haunting soundtrack, a balancing of folk, soft rock, jazz and electronica, complements the scenery and the BAFTA-nominated cinematography by Chris Menges captures that wild and rugged coastal landscape in all its glory. The Scottish landscape is really the unspoken lead of the film, and more often than not, transports the viewer into the transcendent realms of the sublime. I chose my words carefully. The theme of the film is very much about the power of natural beauty to change the values and perspectives of the individual. Mac begins the story as a high-powered and cynical corporate man, willing to lie about his name and preferring to do deals over telex than have real human interaction with clients. Olsten is young and ambitious, fascinated by the glamorous lifestyle of the US and keen to do well in his chosen profession. Yet over the days and weeks that they spend in Furness, their outlook begins to change. The sheer beauty and simplicity of the coast takes hold of the businessmen and overwhelms their ambition and materialism within the power of the sublime. What is wonderful about Bill Forsyth's subtle storytelling is that we know all this not because of any grand speeches, but with little visual cues. Slowly, the dress of the two men devolves to mirror their thoughts and feelings, from the full corporate dress to the removing of a tie, to, by the end of the film, dressing like a local in a proper cable-knit sweater. Mac comes to see the emptiness and vacuity of his life in Texas, and yearns for the simple life by the sea surrounded by the majestic Scottish cliffs. Even as the locals become more and more excited by the prospect of their newly promised wealth, Mac and Olsden come to regret their involvement in a scheme that will destroy the glory of the landscape. This in itself would be enough for the film to have maintained its relevance for 40 years. It's impossible to study current affairs today without encountering worries about climate change, pollution, over-industrialisation and the loss of the natural world. The film's clear conservationist message is as fresh as ever. But it isn't the most powerful. There is a message beneath the message. The sublimity of the natural world can only be truly experienced in the context of human relationships. As I watch the film again, I notice that the power of the scenery in the background 
is complemented and elevated by the human connections in the foreground. Mac forges a real friendship with Urquhart and develops a real fondness for the local people. So although he loves the landscape, it is the relationships it inspires that really move his heart. Olston may be wowed by the sea, but this is elevated by the love he feels for the mysterious web-toed marine biologist Marina swimming in it. The great irony of the story is that Mac and Olsden, isolated corporate men, come to want to protect the integrity of the landscape, while Urquhart and villagers are motivated to sell and abandon it as the local economy stalls. They have grown up with the scenery, they have been formed by it, it is in their bones, and they have been blessed by the cast-iron community bonds that such sublime surroundings inspire. It is on account of their total lack of individualism or atomization that they have the confidence to leave the community behind. In the end, it is a fledgling relationship that saves the village. Happer, isolated and lonely at the top of the corporate ladder, so much so that he pays for his quack psychiatrist to insult and berate him in the hopes of some emotional breakthrough, laugh-out-loud interludes in the storytelling, travels to Furness himself to close the deal. Negotiations have stalled when Ben the beachcomber refuses to sell his stake in the village, quite an important stake, the beach itself. Star-obsessed Happer arrives convinced that he can talk Ben round, but rather than a negotiation, the interaction becomes a meeting of minds in which Ben convinces Happer that the beauty of the stars is a far better investment than oil. Furness will be sold, but so as to be an unspoiled spot where an astronomy observatory can be built. The unlikely relationship that blossoms between a millionaire oil baron and a bumbling beachcomber saves the landscape and the relationships which Mac has come to love so dearly. In a world where technology and social media continue to atomise and divide us, while at the same time giving us simulated experiences and a simulcra of friendship, Local Hero is a gorgeous and glorious antidote. It reminds us of the vital importance and power of human relationships, the pinnacle of our experiences which even mediate the sublime power of Scottish coastal scenery. An important message, and if I may, a comfortably Christian message. For relationship is at the core of who God is, as Trinity. Relationship is at the core of what God wants as he creates the world to be in communion with him. And relationship is at the core of how God brings about our salvation as he comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who calls us his brothers and sisters and friends. Whoever you are and wherever you are, you should watch Local Hero immediately and be reminded of the beautiful and the sublime power of the natural world. And most importantly of all, the beautiful and sublime power of human relationships. Listen to their stories. Five Good Reads by Refugee Writers by Krish Kandaya. I heard them calling out to me as I walked down the street. Hey, Packy, why don't you go back to your own country? I carried on walking. 
I was 14 years old and I'd heard it all before. In fact, I couldn't remember a day when I didn't face a similar verbal barrage at some point. It didn't get any easier. It always hurt. When you are told something over and over again, you start to believe it's true. But I wasn't from Pakistan. None of my family members were from Pakistan. I had been born in the Sussex County Hospital in Brighton. I had a British passport, as did my parents. That group of people on the other side of the road were making judgments about me that were entirely wrong. I had to remind myself, like I did every day, they were the ones who were out of place, not me. They were the ridiculous ones, not me. I flash back to that moment sometimes, as immigration persists as a top news story. Most days in the media, I hear someone say today's equivalent of, hey, Packy, why don't you go back to your own country? The derision is there, the bigotry, the racism, the aim to exclude and humiliate, the false assumptions and preconceptions. It's time to hear the other side of the story. Who are the refugees that are coming here? Why are they coming? What has happened to them to make them stay in a country that is not always as welcoming as it should be? How does it feel to be an asylum seeker or refugee in the UK right now? For refugees who have faced not just verbal abuse, but physical assault, threats of torture and death, the very least we owe them is the courtesy of listening to their stories. As we approach World Refugee Day on the 20th of June, I would like to recommend you spend some time listening not just to the polarising rhetoric, but those about whom they are talking. The best way is to spend time in person with those who have been forced to flee their homes. The second best way is to read books written by or about refugees. The following are some of the most powerful I have read recently. The Lightless Sky, an Afghan refugee boy's journey of escape to a new life in Britain by Gulwali Pasali. This beautifully written book will not only give you a fresh insight into the life in Afghanistan, but will help you understand why there are unaccompanied asylum-seeking young Afghan boys in the UK. Gulwali explains his dangerous childhood in Afghanistan and why his family paid to have him taken out of the country. This book draws you into the world of a young boy proud of his heritage, but fleeing a war zone that ripped his family apart. Gulwani's journey takes him from the mountains of Afghanistan with his grandfather to a roller coaster of a life in the UK and how he became a carrier of the Olympic torch and an outspoken advocate for refugee rights. The Boy with Two Hearts by Hamed Amiri. I saw this gripping tale of Hamed and his family performed at the National Theatre in London. It begins with Hamed's mother, Fariba, taking the brave decision to give a public speech against the injustices of the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Taliban issued an execution order against her, which would likely have led to her death. The family sell their possessions and head out of Afghanistan to get anywhere they can to safety. There are added complications to their already challenging circumstances, as Hussein, Hamed's older brother, needs urgent life-saving heart surgery. It's a nail-biting story of love and loss, 
told with grace as the family travel across seven countries to find sanctuary, finally, in Wales. My Fourth Time We Drowned by Sally Hayden Sally Hayden did not plan to write a book about the world's most dangerous migration route, but when she received direct social media messages from refugees imprisoned in a Libyan detention centre, her life was turned upside down. This gritty story has won numerous awards for outstanding journalism and opens up readers' eyes to the desperate situation faced by asylum seekers in the Middle East and Europe. Sally writes with great precision and detail and offers a candid and challenging picture of life for those forced to flee from countries such as Sudan, Eritrea, Syria and Afghanistan. You don't know what war is. By Yeva Skalietska. Yeva Skalietska, aged 12, was sleeping soundly in her bed at her grandmother's house when suddenly she was jolted awake by a noise that sounded like a car being crushed in scrap metal. She soon came to realise that a rocket attack was taking place in her home city of Kharkiv, Ukraine. Her gripping tale of those first few weeks of the Russian invasion, told from a child's perspective, somehow brings home the reality of war in a most chilling and urgent way. It made me consider how my children would have dealt with all that she had to go through. If you would like to hear refugee authors such as the ones that I've been talking about telling their stories in person... The No Place Like Home Literary Festival is taking place on World Refugee Day, 20th of June, in St Martin's in the Fields Church in Trafalgar Square. A full list of speakers and tickets subject to availability can be found on their website. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.